good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the London School of Economics and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue. Um, as many of you know, the dialogues take lots of different forms, and uh, we've got another new form of a dialogue. Uh, we've talked about uh, long careers, great ideas, great events, dead people, old books. Today, it's a new book. Uh, Fanaticism on the Uses of an Idea by Alberto Toscano, who's a senior lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths, and he's going to be in discussion on his new book with uh, Robert Eaglestone from uh, Royal Holloway University of London, and uh, the format will be that uh, they'll have about 50 minutes to an hour between themselves to talk about some of the ideas in Alberto's new book. Um, the book instead is for sale outside, and uh, the authors here even sign it if you're interested in that. Um, and uh, so they'll have a bit of time to discuss the book and some of the ideas in it, and then uh, the floor will be open for questions. And, and Robert Eaglestone will sort of chair that part, and after about an hour and a half, we'll try <coughs> and stop. Okay, so if I return the book to you, uh, Robert, it's all yours. Um, <coughs> Hi, I'm better. So uh, the first thing, the sort of, uh, Beginning, I suppose. So, can you tell me or tell us a bit about the sort of uh, intellectual and personal background that led you to, to write this book as opposed to another book? What was the sort of background? Um, well, I suppose the background is that um, one of the first, in fact, the first thing I ever um, published when I was still in a philosophy department and doing a, a PhD, and before I um, switched uh, disciplines, was a piece about the the role that this idea of fanaticism uh, had in uh, German uh, philosophy of the late uh, 18th and early 19th century, specifically in uh, German idealism and in the, in the writings of uh, Schelling. And um, I was partly interested in it because, um, in a way, it spoke to the intersection or the point of contact uh, between uh, very abstract, let's say, philosophical uh, debates about infinity, substance, ontology, and so on, on the one hand, and uh, more um, urgent, certainly urgent at the time, uh, debates regarding politics. Uh, and specifically, what I thought was very interesting about the way that the notion of fanaticism was um, introduced and debated within that early um, German uh, context uh, was um, the way in which philosophy registered in, 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 in Germany the impact of uh, the French Revolution in particular and you know of say intellectual movements linked to the Enlightenment uh, more broadly um, but also the fact that this idea of fanaticism was also a very uh, ambivalent one you know so it, it was clear that on the one hand, uh, critical thought, certainly in, in, in the work of, of Kant, for instance, is, uh, plays a quite important role in the book as well, uh, that critical thought or critique uh, involved a way, uh, in, in a sense, an attempt to identify uh, and to limit the uh, impact of something that could be understood as, as a form of fanaticism, whether in religion or in other domains. Of of life, but uh, but on the other hand, that philosophers um, certainly, uh, you know, Kant and, and various uh, German idealist philosophers themselves were relatively uh, ambivalent towards the notion of fanaticism, partly because they recognized, whether implicitly or not, 
that speculative activity or philosophical activity had, let's say, a, a, a certain uh, fanatical moment or, or, or dimension. So it's that that was at the at the source of then trying to look at this concept, I suppose, much more historically and, and more politically rather than strictly in a kind of philosophical arena. <laughs> okay, so and that's that's really interesting because I think that that's um, and that problem. We'll talk about it later. It was at the heart of the book. I mean, the book is is extremely wide ranging. Uh, it covers you know, two centuries of thought, and interesting as you say, it goes from you know uh, abstract philosophy through to some very concrete political engagements. And I guess this is the bit where you get to say, you know, to get to talk about what the what the argument of the book is, or mm -hmm. talk to outline about the book. Yeah. yeah so, uh, I mean, perhaps I can say something very briefly, actually, about about why this very early and quite abstract concern with this pretty specific philosophical problem then, uh, then led me to the book. What I was, um, the reason why I sort of settled on trying to look at the history or the genealogy of this concept is because I thought it strangely brought together two problems that we tend to deal with in a relatively separate uh, manner and that had to do with our uh, intellectual and political present. So. Um, the first, uh, I suppose the most obvious one, um, had to do with my, uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but my uh, um, sort of unease, uh, you know, perhaps that's putting it mildly, with the particular way in which uh, some of the debates around um, enlightenment and uh, contemporary forms of, let's say, a return of religion or fundamentalism and so on were taking place. Um, and that it seemed to me that many of the ways in which this juxtaposition between a kind of enlightened, civilized society on the one hand and a, and a kind of unfathomable and incomprehensible uh, 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 fundamentalist resurgence of religion on the other, that a lot of those debates were, whether consciously or otherwise, uh, repeating some older historical tropes, let's say, you know, either present in the Enlightenment or during the Cold War and so on and so forth. The other uh, issue um, was a certain uh, return, I suppose, in maybe in political theory, but also in philosophy, uh, of an interest in forms of, um, let's say, broadly speaking, kind of radical emancipatory uh, politics. Uh, whether it's in this, um, you know, recent uh, books and uh, conferences about communism or general debates about equality and emancipation and so on. And the reason why that um, was of interest to me, um, or, or why looking at this through the prism of fanaticism was interesting, was because, at least since the French Revolution, as I try to talk about in the book, but you know, even before, there's a way in which uh, projects or ideas of uh, radical transformation or radical emancipation, or whatever you want to call it, have been, um, whether you know, kind of stigmatized by a certain idea of. of Right. So, uh, so that's in a sense what kind of uh, lay behind the the drafting uh, of the book. Basically, um, the hypothesis, hopefully to some extent, has been uh, uh, fruitfully uh, uh, carried out. Uh, the hypothesis that this idea somehow uh, allowed one to look at a broader historical uh, period. Uh, to study uh, or, or to at least inquire into the ways in which uh, both uh, supposedly radical religious forms of subjectivity and supposedly um, radical forms of politics had been defined 
uh, as, in some sense, the opposite of a, uh, um, a consensual, perhaps liberal understanding of politics. So, uh, and so the, uh, in a nutshell, uh, then the, 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 well, I don't know if I can say the book has a thesis, because it's a bit more of a narrative than a, than a sort of analytical argument, but um, the, in, in a sense, the object of the book is to look at the different, at different moments in different ways uh, in which, um, in which this term or this notion of fanaticism was used to identify uh, anomalous, let's say, forms of, of political engagement. Specifically, uh, it is to look at one of the aspects of, uh, of that use of fanaticism. Uh, as I say in, in the introduction, actually one of the odd things about this term is that it's a very uh, kind of a protein or even a kind of contradictory term. So um, fanatics can be, certainly were historically, both people or groups or movements considered to be totally irrational, uh, intractable, unintelligible, uh, beyond the pale. Um, and uh, movements and individuals and forms of thought that are considered to be excessively rational. And that, that's what I thought was very intriguing about it. So just, just around the same, uh, in the same historical uh, periods, for instance, uh, both um, uh, movements that were considered to, um, you know, to be excessively radical forms of the Enlightenment and uh, supposedly particularist religious, uh, often anti-colonial movements was, was one of the objectives of, of his treatment, uh, were, both, were both treated with the same term. Now the book is mostly concerned not with the, um, the accusation of fanaticism levied against abstraction. So levied against movements that, or, or ideas, especially in the context of, of the French Revolution and what followed, that were considered to be uh, fanatical because of their in a sense, excess of rationality. And the reason, in a sense, to focus on that was also to, to displace or undermine our common sense idea, which is to think, well, fanatics are always, uh, you know, the unreasonable, let's say. So. And I, think, I think that comes across very clearly at the beginning when you discuss um, anti-slavery campaigns mm -hmm. being described as fanatics. Um, that also leads to, to uh, for a long time in the book, I was thinking, this term fanaticism is, is purely a, a rhetoric used by one group against the others, or one group against another. Mm. The, the anomalous against the anomalous. You know. um, I think that's very well that you brought that up really well. But one of the things that also struck me as I was reading the book, and I, I feel like a terrible old literary professor, which is what I am, really, <laughs> is that there, you know, there seems to me to be three secret enemies mm. in the book that you sort of shift around. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll ask you about each of those. And then there are two secret goodies. Mm -hmm. well. So the first one, which you've already approached a bit, is a sort of sense of liberalism. And by the time I got sort of to the second or third chapter, I was thinking, you know, the book could almost be sort of subtitled Against Liberalism. Mm -hmm. And Camille, how, how do you feel about, about that? I mean, does, that does that sound mm -hmm. fair to you? Yeah, I wonder if liberalism isn't about as, as uh protein or contradictory a term as fanaticism. Um, I, I, you know, I, mean, I suppose you know, I, I, there, there's certainly a, a, a truth to that. Um, been made for a more controversial subtitle. Um, but um, there is there's a certain truth to that because um, at least in the arguments, um, at least in the arguments around, for instance, <coughs> slavery and abolition, mm -hmm. uh, or indeed in the arguments around uh, the consequences of, of, the, of the French 
revolution, um, there is a way in which uh, thinkers uh, or, or positions that we would consider today, perhaps under the rubric of liberalism, um, were um, on the one hand anti-fanatical, as liberalism in a sense always is, but also uh, aligned uh, with forms of politics that we today would consider to be you know, regressive, to say the least, yeah. like apologies for slavery. And I, I, th there, I thought there was something very um, interesting about the fact that um, that certainly in the in the early nineteenth uh, century, um, liberal arguments about uh, the limits of politics, uh, about uh, individual um, freedoms, the limitations of government, and and, and and so on and so forth, were actually. Um, used in many ways as as a, as um, as forms of kind of apologetic discourses in favor of uh, you know whether forms of uh, authoritarianism, class oppression, slavery, uh, and so on. Now, what I think is um, is interesting is of course, and you know the point, the the interesting dimension there is that it brings out um, a real um, ambivalence within liberalism as a historical form itself, because you know in, in many ways, and it's not. Um, it, it's by, in, in a sense, it's by no means controversial. I mean, the French uh, Revolution, in many ways, is an impeccably liberal revolution mm -hmm. based on, on, on you know, liberal principles. And in fact, uh, much of the even the kind of Marxist critique of the Re French Revolution was uh, a critique that was actually a critique of its fanaticism, was saying, well, precisely because it was a liberal revolution that couldn't engage in a social revolution, then it led to a form of terror and so on and so forth. Um, so you have this, um, you have elements of what we today would consider to be a fairly uh, unified notion of liberalism playing out on, on, on both sides of, of this uh, debate, um, debate about fanaticism. So I think one of the things, you know, perhaps more of a side effect of the book, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, looking um, at the development and the uses of this notion of fanaticism can do is in a sense to allow one to see how um, the different ways in which uh, liberalism defined itself against some um, anomalous or extreme form of politics which doesn't necessarily always you know by any means remain the same yeah. um, and so and, and so perhaps one of the effects is to is to see um, the not to see the history of liberalism, which is I think we usually do, as a history of uh, a, a kind of coherent and uh, principle, which then is simply gradually applied to more and more of the population. So that the, so that the limitations of liberalism initially would be thought of as being okay. Well, this is only liberalism for yeah, you know property white men, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and then it's 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 uh, gradually increased. And I think um, looking at the problem of liberalism in terms of, of that antagonistic relationship to other forms of, of, of uh, uh, politics or extreme form of politics and so on, um, I, I think uh, moves us away from that excessively well, easy perhaps. I think that's, re that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things I felt in, in, in the book is that the, the I mean, you keep saying things like um, you know, what's at stake here is uh, the capacity of liberal thought to identify and demarcate itself from fanaticism. So this is the, to the two, I mean, just as you were saying that fanaticism hasn't got a strict definition, mm. it's constantly anomalous. I mean, it's that liberalism are in a constant dance with each other, mm -hmm. and are constantly sort of self-defining each other. So I thought that was a very interesting 
accountable. Mm. I was imagining the alternate universe where mm. people call liberalism or liberalism. Yeah. So that was the sort of first. Um, that was the first sort of uh, baddie that I thought. Mm. That, that is just silly mm. word, but first interesting sort of antagonist. Antagonist. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other two, I suppose, were linked, and they come in from time to time. And I, it's almost as if you kept wanting to say, oh, "No, I'm telling you this," but you keep mm. drawing back because of your historical. Mm. Your historical. I mean, your, I suppose, what was it? Positivism and a sort of scientism. Mm-hmm. You feel very. I mean, uh, Dawkins and Dennett. Mm. Okay. Come in and that sense, okay. And I've always been sort of maybe more of a secret enemy than one that I was particularly. Well, I don't, I don't the liberalism more is more explicit. Yeah, okay, it, wasn't, it wasn't that secret. I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and I thought, so I keep wanting to say to you, if you cut out those paragraphs, yeah, expand on them now. Right. And right. Um, yeah, I mean that that's obviously one one of the one of the um, you know vaguely zeitgeisty yeah. issues present in in trying to think through. Through this uh, book was uh, precisely the, the presence of um, of a certain way of linking a, a philosophical and/or scientific uh, definition of uh, atheism um, or of secularism, and then we can maybe discuss the difference between the two and um, certain uh, a certain diagnosis of the present as 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 a you know the idea that we live in a present moment where you know. Um, Whatever civil cohesion or you know uh, uh, social progress is somehow um, uh, stymied by the existence of <coughs> forms of religious irrationality, and I thought um, one of one of the things that um, so in, in one sense um, my own allegiances are relatively uh, split. I mean, I have you know uh, no problem whatsoever uh, with atheism and indeed with many political forms. Uh, related to it, but I, I did think there was a real problem in that kind of diagnosis. So not, not in the idea that atheism is a good thing or what have you, but in the idea that somehow um, somehow religious fanaticism itself was the kind of enemy number one, so to speak. Uh, now, the way that I tried to look at it in the book um, was that what actually is, t- is taking place today, I think, is the um, repetition of a certain um, a certain critique of fanaticism, which I would broadly, and this is you know possibly not very you know not, not entirely entirely precise, but I would broadly identify with a sort of first kind of eighteen you know mid eighteenth century Voltaire like enlightenment, and in fact the figure of Voltaire I think is is very interesting because it's in Voltaire's writings about tolerance versus fanaticism that you get that you get in a sense the the um, emergence of one of the rhetorical uses of fanaticism that we find today, which is the idea that basically all uh, uh, religious uh, fanatics or all religious extremists are, uh, in a sense, the manifestation of more or less the same problem. One of the things that one finds, which is quite amusing, because Voltaire is a very good writer, but you know, one finds in Voltaire is these endless lists of all of the forms of you know, religious irrationality that human beings could ever engage in. And he has this, uh, and I think I quoted in the book, this quite delirious uh, passage. Um, um, well, both him and this other writer in the Encyclopédie, Deleuze, has this passage where he Imagines the this pantheon of um, see so you have the book I don't I have, have my own book 
uh, he imagines this um, this pantheon where all of the forms of you know all of the kind of forms of religious irrationality are present. You know, people who starve themselves, people who eat too much, people who uh, engage in sexual orgies, people who castrate themselves, etc., etc., etc. And it's got this kind of um, sort of delirious idea. And, and 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 intriguingly, one finds this. So it wasn't so much. A direct, I mean, I don't know exactly, I mean, aside from the fact that I think it's a bit simplistic, I, it, you know, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily have like that specific, uh, uh, um, you know, conceptual critique of, let's say, what people for short now call the new atheism, which is mm -hmm. a fairly odd term. Um, I, mean, I was happy with my old one, but yeah, I didn't yeah. think about it. Um, but I, what I was, what I'm interested in that is that kind of style of play. <laughs> yeah? And one of the things that I think happens, which is very interesting, and this returns to why, wh where I first came across these notions about fanaticism, one of the things that happens which is very interesting in uh, figures like Kant and in German idealism, um, and indeed after the French Revolution where things get considerably more complicated in terms of, of the question of fanaticism, is that thinkers like Kant st stop thinking or stop arguing that fanaticism is simply this uh, you know weird aberration of those who have yet to be uh, reached by reason, you know? um, and actually then Kant starts uh, you know that's indeed what critique in a sense is at a minimal level all about starts to think well in what sense is uh, fanaticism whether in terms of uh, the notion that you can have direct knowledge of, of the divinity and the divinity's wishes or whatever or you know that you can experience the infinite etc. To what extent is that an internal uh, dimension, internal propensity of rationality itself? Mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, likewise, to what extent are forms of uh, extreme uh, moral or political enthusiasm also intrinsic to reason, and in fact, in certain circumstances, also somehow to be defended, or you know, at least, at least uh, uh, to, be, um, to be seen as something that one can't simply uh, get rid of. And, and, and so what I what struck me about some of the trends in the kind of Dawkins Dennett mm -hmm. uh, debates is that is at least in rhetorical style, not necessarily in scientific argument or detail, but in rhetorical style, a return to uh, a much more comforting notion that on the one hand you have rationality and tolerance, and on the other hand you have these forms of aberrant uh, ignorance, superstition, etc. Uh, and in fact, actually, before the you know, even in even in Hume, for instance, who I talk about uh, in the book, you find a, I think a much more uh, subtle um, take on the relationship between politics and religion. When when Hume, for instance, talks about uh, divides what we might call fanaticism into superstition and enthusiasm, and so Hume essentially argues that superstition is actually an, you know there's nothing good to be drawn out of superstition. Mm -hmm. It's inherently negative. Uh, an inherently ignorant uh, uh, and, and debilitating form of thought. On the other hand, enthusiasts of people who uh, somehow have inordinate convictions or who uh, who you know sort of live in an incredibly extremist way according to certain moral principles actually do eventually or can uh, make quite important uh, uh, contributions to a sort of polity and so on. And you know, Hume's uh, example is. Quakers. Mm -hmm. uh, Quakers, uh, one moment kind of paradigmatic uh, fanatics, hence the quaking. Uh, you know, later the you know perfectly uh, um, sort of integrated uh, kind of figures, and you find not entirely dissimilar 
arguments in, in Adam Smith as well. Well, that's that's a, that leads on really nicely to, to I think it's one of the uh, things that really struck me with the book, which is, as it were, if we talked about the secret enemies or less secret yeah. enemies in the book. There were three, though. You're on to the yeah, positivism and um, oh, positivism and scientism. Okay, it's one together. Okay, uh, that's two twin, together. twin enemies. Twin, yeah, yeah. Well, I think. I mean, if you want to talk more about positivism, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I suppose positivism itself wasn't really uh, yeah, yeah. kind of. I mean, I was thinking of it, was, I was thinking of it was sort of rolled up in a sort of scientific sort of form rather than mm. as a you know, not, not the yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, one, one interesting question is to what extent, I mean, I suppose if we think of, of the work of, of you know, the, these polemical writings of Dawkins and Dennett and so on, in terms of that kind of Voltaire legacy, your question does open up to what, to what extent, to what extent does science, or indeed positivism for that matter, yeah. have that much to do with these debates? Because in a sense, they're debates that take the same form and then say, ah, but now we know X and Y yeah. and Z about the brain. Or, or, or we know X, Y, and Z about about um, you know, about evolution or whatever. But I, I, to, to to my mind, I'm not quite so sure that I don't know that science is that key in the debates themselves. Well, I think so. I mean that's why I mentioned science. Yeah. it seems to me exactly. The, the, I totally agree mm. with you that the Dawkins and uh, more Dawkins than Dennett, mm. but the popular science boom books mm. are really sort of uh, cod scientific philosophy. Masquerading as something else with authority, they don't really actually don't really have. But, but I, before we get ranting about that, so the the, the the sort of one of the sort of secret heroes of the books, I thought there were, there were two. Um, and one I thought was very interesting was um, religion. All the way through, it was a, a constant, uh, interesting theme that kept emerging in one of the positive ways. But one of the very best uh, sections of the books, your discussion of Marx. Uh, as a, a critique of the critique of religion, mm. and, I, and I thought that was a really. And I thought. I mean, I always want to say that. Just talk about that. Mm. What? Yeah. That's, it seems. It seems very. Yeah. Un, it seems unlike many other things that I've been reading recently. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to. Yeah. It would be very much against my my, my own <coughs> proclivities if the book ended up being an enemy of atheism and the friend of religion. That would be a saddening fact. But well, uh, no, no, no. But I'm I'm, I'm kidding. Um, no, I think. Um, I think, on, on the one hand, I'm, I'm somewhat suspicious. I understand the motivations for it, for a certain return to religious figures and themes in, say, uh, contemporary, um, you know, radical emancipatory thought. So you have, you know, but he writes a book on Saint Paul. Uh, you know, Negri talks about Saint Francis, etc., etc. So there's, you know, it's almost so like everybody's suspicious. Uh, um, well, because in in some way, I think. Um, I think what happens in a lot of these return, you know, in, in sort of, you know, radical communist philosopher fine saint um, um, moment, yeah. Yeah. is that um, is that in a way then the the, the religious uh, figures end up, and you know, it's not necessarily a problem, but they end up being figures of a particular, uh, end up being figures of militancy. It's, it's they're not really so. It's actually within that domain. It's not really a return of religion. It's not even a return of theology. It's a return of uh, certain figures of religious militancy or, or, or subjectivity or asceticism or whatever you want to call it as somehow exemplary. Uh, there are in other parts of philosophy, including uh, you know, in certain dimensions of phenomenology and so on, returns to theology, you know, which is a kind of quite different uh, uh, domain. So, yeah. Okay, just unpack that for, yeah. for me. Right. Well, what, what, I mean, I think. What's the difference between Derrida doing theology and Jujet talking about St. Paul? 
Um, well, the things that Zizek talking about St. Paul is not is is interested in the dimension of conviction. I think, ba you know, mm -hmm. at, a, at a basic level, so it's it's a question of what is what in uh, the contemporary um, setting, which you know is often perceived as depoliticized, apathetic, uh, uh, you know, caught in a kind of you know what the French call pensée unique, you know, the the single you know thought of, of, of neoliberalism or what have you, with Thatcher, you know. Thatcher's famous Tina, there is no alternative, yeah. etc. What in this situation would be a form of uh, radical conviction in, in a situation which is not particularly friendly towards that? You know? uh, and intriguingly, then, people like Badiou and Zizek turn to, uh, well, often have turned to Paul, you know, Paul writing in the middle of you know, mm -hmm. the Roman Empire, uh, writing in a situation of you know, complete lack of resources and strength based on the pure conviction. Paul, for the other aspect of it is that at least in those readings, it's not what Paul, it's not Paul's theology, but the way that Paul thinks through the, the organization, let's it's say, of militancy, of militancy, of a kind of, uh, you know, of a sort of collective, universalizable uh, mm -hmm. collective, based on uh, a belief or a conviction. In this case, that of the resurrection, but obviously for Zizek and Badiou, that's not particularly mm -hmm. significant. Uh, of a conviction that can be, um, that is open to all. Yeah. So that's mm -hmm. that's a kind of dimension, which is of course why a lot of people have then criticized them for having a specifically Christian, mm -hmm. let's say, model. And that's another debate. Right. So in in this turn to religion, for me at least, there isn't there isn't a concern with uh, theology or indeed with the, with that kind of speculative or metaphysical. Question of you know of asking about the Trinity, the infinity of God, you know God's like mode. It's a political model. Yeah. yeah. So it's religion as a political model, and and in fact I suppose if uh, if something there is a sense in which the book is interested, certainly in the chapter. Well, certainly when I deal with millenarianism and Bloch and so on, but also in the chapter of Marx on why um, openly uh, and in fact militantly atheist thinkers and philosophers were attracted. Uh, or at least try to think through religion uh, as a form of, um, you know, as a form of militancy, what have you. In the chapter in Marx, I, th I suppose the question is slightly different. Um, it's the, the the question in 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 Marx, but I think also in other figures in the 19th century, was a question about what were the limitations of that first uh, enlightenment, you know, or if you want to call it that way. That's what were the limitations of just thinking in terms of tolerance and fanaticism? Mm -hmm. um, and there's a way in which, you know, briefly, there's a kind of accusation that comes out of Marx, I suppose, uh, against the obsession also of his contemporaries with religion. You know, it was very, you know, 1820s and 1830s, partly because people lived in a in an openly Christian state and so on and so forth. The idea was that, you know, that the critique of religion was the the be-all and end-all, you know, the first thing that you had to do before you got to politics or society or economy and so on. Um, and whilst Marx takes that critique of religion and then Enlightenment tradition as the starting point, he thinks that there's really, n it's not that he thinks it's wrong as such, but that uh, in a sense it has been completed, I think that's the term he uses, or kind of exhausted, and actually uh, to still focus on the critique of religion is to, um, misunderstand or to neglect uh, the sources of certain forms of, let's say, uh, either religious authority or religious irrationality and so on and so forth. So the odd formulation of a critique of the critique of religion is not to say that, it's not like a negation of the negation, yeah. when then Marx says, yeah, religion is, 
is, is fantastic, which obviously he doesn't. I mean, the, 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 the example that, you know, the, the key text for this, I suppose, is, is um, on the Jewish question, which, of, which is, of course, where, in fact, most interesting when Marx writes about America, where he says, well, you know, what you have there is that um, in what, at the time, he perceives as the most modern of, of constitutions, and because it is the most liberal, in a sense, of, of states and the most advanced form of capitalism, uh, that uh, on the one hand, the transcendence of, 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 of God um, and the transcendence of that form of divine authority has been um, translated onto the state. And so then the problem for Marx becomes, well, not so much a critique of religion in, it, in the sense of people worshipping or not worshipping, but the critique of, um, well, what, you know, of alienation, the critique of how human beings generate you know, entities, abstract entities yeah. that dominate their existence, whether the state or capital yeah. and so on. But also, and that's, I suppose, more relevant perhaps to the present context, the other question that Marx raises is like, well, you can well, very well have a secular state which is, socially speaking, immensely religious and indeed superstitious. I mean, his argument is, of course, that the United States is, on the one hand, the most um, the most advanced constitution in the sense of secularization, but actually, in his view, uh, behind a lot of European countries, in the sense of uh, in the sense of the presence of, let's say, religious irrationality and superstition in everyday life, in a way. Okay. So, uh, so, so in a sense, even even for an a even for like a, a radical atheist, in a sense, then the the you know, as he was, you know, yeah. the critique of the state and the critique of capital take precedence. At least that was. Yeah, that's a very long uh, yeah, answer. Uh, no, that's good. So, but I'm just trying to think of, of it doesn't leave we me completely. We did have to fill this out. No, no, it's all right. we've got plenty to talk about. It doesn't leave me completely satiated mm, mm, mm. Uh, about that. And so again, one of the things I thought that it, saying religion was a sort of secret goodie or whatever yeah. text. Well, I was trying to think about whether, and I thought your example of the Quakers uh, from Hume is particularly illuminating. I mean, whether um, some of these sorts of debates had already occurred within a series of religious discourses. Mm -hmm. And were already uh, have been percolated through. Um, does that make Does that make sense? I was wondering whether you saw in religion uh, certain discourses of religion, ways in which some of these a poorer of your mm. that you draw up uh, had been worked through already. Oh, you mean to say that 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 religion had engaged in a kind of internal critique? Yeah. So Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I suppose so. I mean, actually, to go, I mean, I didn't mention it, but it, it's significant to the, quite significant to the structure of the book. Actually, the, the, the emergence of the, of the political, both political and religious idea of fanaticism was, of course, much earlier, and and, and so you get these very virulent debates uh, about the political uses of religion and theology in the Reformation, and in fact, it's. It's uh, uh, Luther who, in, 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 in attacking quite virulently, what he perceives is the, the misuse uh, of, uh, of you know, the, the, the Reformation by these radical peasant movements and their, and their millenarian leader, Thomas Munzer, who brings out this idea mm. of, of fanaticism. And so actually, already, you get this form of, uh, this form of internal uh, internal critique, and, and, and of course that, that in a sense is not surprising actually for political sociological reasons in a sense. I mean, the, the, there is a, also an, 
internal uh, religious critique of fanaticism, partly because uh, the fanatic, or indeed in other forms the heretic, uh, is often the one who is um, undermining uh, a religious institution, or, or you know, or you know, a church, or a, or, or a kind of religious agreement of, of some variety or another. So, so that's present. Yeah, that's present within within uh, you know religious orders themselves, and it's very. You know, it's very interesting, actually, how, um, how, especially, I, I suppose, especially in kind of contemporary circumstances, but how religious movements will use, will use aspects of Enlightenment uh, um, uh, anti-religious arguments against branches of their own religious. For um, Well, so for uh, I mean, I mean, I suppose the the arguments that. Um, well, the arguments that both, well, I suppose you know, the Catholic Church uh, and, and, and Protestant general have had against their more apocalyptic or millenarian movement, that already begins with Luther, which, which is kind of peculiar because, of course, Luther himself writes all sorts of apocalyptic and millenarian things. He just thinks that the, the, the political translation of it is a fundamental betrayal of, um, of what the of what the Protestant, well, what his teaching, of course, is not already uh, um, codified in that way, but, you know, what his teaching um, involves. And so, you know, and, you know, I mean, I think you can, you know, you possibly find, you know, versions of this in, you know, in the, you know, Catholic Church's, uh, you know, sort of distancing of figures like it was a Cardinal Lefebvre, and these, you know, all, you know, forms of, of extreme rigorism, you know, for instance, people who you know, you know, refuse to have the mass read in anything but Latin, etc., etc. And and actually, there's a, um, I suppose that internal critique of fanaticism comes through because of the the political needs, the institutional needs of of, of certain larger kind of um, uh, religious groups. So one, you know, one could argue, and I suppose that was kind of Hume's gambit. You know, Hume's gambit was in a sense in those pieces about. Enthusiasm and superstition—that there were these internal mechanisms of pacification within certain, uh, you know, al al you know, almost like there was a kind of arc, you know, that you, that you would have a, a certain fanatical form, which would then, for reasons of self-preservation, become sort of, you know, civilized, sensible, etc. So my last, if you want, the sort of yeah. goodies and baddies. Yeah. Um, I, I thought was psychoanalysis. I mean, so uh, important for Jijek uh, and so on, mm -hmm. for example. Psychoanalysis is a sort of discourse. Um, and I felt you kept touching on that. Mm. But I wanted to draw you out a bit more about it. I mean, psychoanalysis and fanaticism. Mm. Well, you read one of your chapters praising yeah. psychoanalysis. Well, I kind of, I, I sort of pray, I mean, I, I praise to some extent Freud more, I suppose, more Freud, than yeah, psychoanalysis yeah, yeah, yeah. In, uh, in particular. Um, partly because. Um, you know, partly because I think um, Freud, in a way, uh, like you know, I mean, possibly a, an even more um, uh, extreme, if one wants to put it, atheist than Marx in in, in, in many respects. Uh, but nevertheless, I think um, someone who who like like Marx, I suppose that would be the the, the point. Like Marx, thought that. The problems of um, of something like the critique of religion, uh, critique of certain forms of authority, rationality, etc., 
should not uh, be limited or should not be circumscribed to things that are obviously religious in, in kind, you know. So in, in one way, Freud says things, you know, says, says, you know, much more, you know, quite extreme things about the nature of uh, religious belief and certainly has no kind of pious respect. I mean, I think the term he uses is, um, you know, obsessional, you know, collective obsessional neurosis or something along those lines. Uh, but the intriguing thing is that, is that the, the focus, you know, like the focus for Marx is on abstraction and authority rather than whether people, you know, individually believe or, or, or not. Likewise, I think in, in Freud, the, the focus, and that's why he's much closer to that kind of Kantian enlightenment that I was getting at, the focus is on the um, certain uh, tendencies within human reason and, and, and cognition, certain, you know, patterns of thought that lead one, uh, perhaps, to, to uh, um, subjugate oneself to, you know, certain, uh, you know, irrationally subjugate oneself to certain authorities and so on, rather than to be particularly uh, obsessed or concerned with religion uh, alone. And I think, I, I suppose part of the reason, at the same time, I think, um, and Freud is much more careful than a lot of people who today would talk, uh, constantly psychologize political um, behavior. I think that's the other thing, you know, I mean, partly because actually of Freud's own, not positivism, but, you know, Freud's own kind of regard for scientific method and yeah. so on, which of course is quite controversial, but nevertheless, um, he doesn't so easily engage in, 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 in the activity that we see today, for instance, very commonly in commentary about, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, fundamentalist uh, political movements and so on, which is to almost uh, always directly uh, psychologize. So everything is just like a you know, kind of mental pathology mm -hmm. and that resolves all problems. So in the chapter where I, I, I deal with this, I deal with a number of, of people who have tried to use psychoanalysis, especially kind of, you know, Lacanian psychoanalysis and so on, to talk about, um, you know, to talk specifically about Islam and, and, and so on and so forth in ways that I don't find uh, persuasive uh, because their arguments which often treat um, secularism uh, as a, 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 in, a, in a very odd way as kind of psychically normative like so the only you know so like the only adjusted subject would be a subject that can make these distinctions between you know civil and divine authorities and so on which I think is a kind of odd argument whilst Freud both goes deeper in his critique of of, of religion and in his, in his atheism, but I think doesn't fall prey as easily to the comforting idea that the bad beliefs are always someone else's, yeah. or that the you know, which is one of my problems. Well, I, I'm asking a very unfair question yeah. now, uh, which is the question of the, of the book. Really, it's the question the book mm. really asks. I mean, all the way through the book, there's a, a tension between exactly said at the beginning, between as it were, uh, like liberalism and fanaticism, mm. between. Fanaticism, and you say very early on, um, among the dilemmas that haunt the Enlightenment is whether fanaticism is to be fought as an external foe, or whether one should inoculate oneself against it by means of unconditional and passionate attachments. And you talk about Nietzsche talking about the, uh, the men of conviction uh, who sort of do things and have convictions, but for whom Nietzsche says convictions are prisons. And the men, the more sort of sceptical men of truth, mm -hmm. who you know, are not fanatics, but are sceptical, mm. constantly <coughs> thinking and balancing. Uh, and I, I want to sort of, so all the way through, I mean, you don't, you don't, uh, you avoid answering this question mm. of coming down. Mm. The very final pages, you say, um, so 
very interesting thing to say. Fanaticism understood as a politics of passionate and unconditional conviction, which is a good thing, is in many ways a child crisis at moments when the political compass is broken. And militancy is more a matter of will and faith uh, the outgrowth of organic interests and clear prospects. And that sounds very, in many ways, very pro-fanaticism, even that sort of Zizek, Badiou way of being, you know, full of a movement because it moves. Yeah, okay. But, but. and then you say, you want to say, the refusal of compromise, the affirmation of principle, and passionate partisanship um, uh, are the moments of any politics that seeks the radical transformation of the status quo. But, you say, politics is the final sentence of the book. But politics so you're giving it away. Do you, uh, <laughs> it, was the, it was the butler all along. The politics is not reducible to the cry, clash, or the axiom. Urgency and transience must be covered with patience and strategy. There's ever to be a history without finesse. And I thought that's sort of you, you're it's not such yeah. me giving away. It's that you, you yeah. what's what's the I mean, you, you have this, uh, this praise for fanaticism, this passionate and conviction, yet, and also these concerns about it as uh, you sort of anomalous, I suppose, that's not a concern. So, I mean, all the way through there's this tension at all. So, I mean, okay, yeah. what's, the, what's the answer? Yeah. So, tell me what you think. Oh, that's a stupid yeah. thing to ask you, but what's the sort of good? What is it? Should I, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I was, I was presenting yeah. something, and I said the chair was. Uh, with somebody from Amnesty International afterwards turned and said, I'm a good fanatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 but it's a very, yeah, yeah. It's a very serious question. And I think, well, yeah, the code. you uh, can uh, add a code. I was going to ask one of the examples, of course, is uh, all those debates over the Iraq war, mm. which were talking about liberal fanatics. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I, that, was, that, was, yeah. that was a sort of hard the political yeah. debate in my yeah. mind. Please talk I about I mean, at a very, you know, at a very formal level, there isn't. I mean, I think that that perhaps is one of the dangers of uh, of some of the uh, arguments. Um, well, not dangers, but you know, kind of confusions, perhaps, of some of the arguments in in um, Zizek about conviction and, and the act is that it can become a very formal uh, argument. And of course, there's plenty of things that people are passionately convinced of that I think are disastrous or stupid, and many others might. So it's not. I think the um, you know, th th there's something very uh, limited uh, about about praising principle uh, uh, as as such. <coughs> um, I suppose having uh, having said that, what I wanted to um, what I wanted perhaps to to move towards, and you know, through this quite historical uh, um, exploration of the term. Was one a was one a sort of under you know a sort of understanding, both of what some of the features of fanaticism might be, but all, and and also of the critics or the the people who write against and about uh, and about fanaticism. Um, and what I meant about about moments of crisis is quite specific. I think I, you know I, I do think that um, that an emphasis on conviction as such is. Uh, historically, quite um, quite specific. Uh, often, the um, you know it's often part of, of movements that are materially uh, or, or socially quite weak, or that are in a in, in you know which are in a kind of very uneven balance of forces, imbalance of forces, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, sometimes in a very praiseworthy way. So if you take the if you take the case of of radical or so-called immediatist abolitionism in the eighteen 
1830s, 1840s in the United States, um, the, the sort of purity and extremism of conviction, which was actually a strategy and not just some kind of, uh, you know, simply a moral conviction, was partly there because of how, um, you know, how disempowered it wasn't, you know, and, and so, um, so I think that level of uh, that abstraction and principle can be immensely significant. Um, but I, I do think one should be, you know, what I, what I meant, I suppose, at the end was I think one should be uh, aware that um, a defense of certain fanatical forms of of, of behavior <coughs> of of conviction. It's something that only arises in moments when, when change is remarkably, you know, social change or transformation is remarkably um, difficult, um, and and that in fact sometimes it's sometimes it's a maybe a, a political necessity, but also a sign of weakness. Yeah, uh, and in one you know in one way those you know that's an argument that in fact Zizek, following I suppose some Marxist arguments about the French Revolution, has himself made. You know, there are moments. There are movements whose extremism, you know, take the French uh, terror in particular, mm -hmm. are also a symptom of the fact of how difficult they actually find to really change sort of social relations. And so there's a kind of, you know, in his psychoanalytic terms, a kind of acting out, which is actually based on, on the difficulty of having a more, you know, strategic and substantive sort of uh, 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 transformation of, you know, society in one way or another. Um, so. You know, so I, I, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, I suppose it's a, it's not a, so it's not a defense, let's say, of, um, of fanaticism or of conviction or of abstract principles um, as such, but I think it's uh, an argument, one, that they are just simply political conditions, where for better or for worse, and indeed for emancipatory or totally regressive reasons, this is a, a, a phenomenon, or, or at least a, de, a debate or problem that arises. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, that it's, and this is, I suppose, the, the more kind of Kantian point, that you know, that form of radical, um, of what Kant would have called enthusiasm, is an inextricable uh, part of uh, you know any uh, uh, um, you know substantive um, uh, substantive politics. Indeed, it was a part of uh, liberalism before mm -hmm. it became mainstream, so to speak, as well. Um, and so, and so that totally, let's say, defanaticized politics is perhaps not entirely a politics at all in that regard, rather a form of management or administration mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, maybe on that note. Okay. okay. So uh, I've had nearly an hour to interrogate about other questions or thoughts, responses, <coughs> issues. Suppose it would it would be a kind of family of terms around um, 
tolerance, gradualism, dialogue, etc., etc., which, which is actually why. Wait, I'll wait until. Or else I can't see. Um, which is actually why the the, the point about uh, I mean you you mentioned the the Iraq War, but also just more more generally one of the things that's intriguing, just at a purely rhetorical discursive level about the recent you know the last decade or so, um, is the the recurrence of figures who consider themselves to be liberals or sometimes in a more, you know, regressive manner, you know, sort of defenders of, you know, the Enlightenment, or Western civilization, dubious uh, way of going about it, um, who, um, who argue that one has to be intractable about defending, you know, this is the, this old problem, you know, like, you know, the, 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 the fanatical defense of anti-fanaticism. Um, there was, uh, there's a very weird book, one of the, one of the only, Recent books really thematize fanaticism as a as a concept that I uh, read, which is by uh, I mean it depends how you refer to liberalism, but a fairly you know right wing uh, uh, American um, sort of uh, essayist I think called Lee Harris I talked about in the book who wrote this book called The Threat to Reason, and it's all about you know the usual the usual line. You know, Radical Islam is killing the Enlightenment, and even worse, there's this kind of fifth column of people who think they're liberals, but are nevertheless tolerating too much, and therefore will lead to the death of tolerance. Yeah, and so that's the that's the argument where you get this kind of idea of inoculation, like so the idea that well, the only way that you fight the the fanatic is by whilst maintaining your principles of tolerance, etc. Somehow, in your uh, political and indeed military practice. Uh, um, engaging in a, you know, so there's kind of mimetic relationship. And actually that's really, I mean, that's something I mean, didn't talk about before, but thanks for the question, because it's something that, that from uh, Luther's arguments against the, the fanaticism of Thomas Munzer and the Radical Reformation, all the way to the way that British imperial administrators talk about dealing with fanatics in uh, the Sudan, you know, uh, in, in, you know, in the Raj and so on and so forth, in all of these cases, uh, there's a, a way in which the fact that one's enemy is a, is a fanatic demands almost mimetically that one engage in, you know, it, it's part of it is that kind of you don't negotiate with terrorists, you don't negotiate with the enemies of, 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 of tolerance. But I think there's something, there's something that goes a little, uh, that, that goes a little deeper than that. I mean, if one reads, for instance, some of the, the text about written by. Uh, members of the of of the you know sort of imperial officers like you know in the Sudan or 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 in what would now be the you know the sort of uh, uh, you know what would now be something like <coughs> Waziristan or whatever fighting Wahhabis uh, that was you know uh, you have what you have is uh, these actually almost a weird language of kind of like military admiration you know. You know of, of this idea that you're fight you're fighting against people whose, com whose convictions are so total that uh, uh, you know you know that that you know they'll engage in acts of incredible valor. You can't negotiate with them, so you have to kill them all. But they're sort of you know infinitely kind of like fascinating, and so you get these letters like, oh God, you know, I have to go back to like these incredibly boring, civilized, you know, tolerant people who I will you know or, you know who I, I aim to defend. But actually, what really draws me is you know these. You know, 
There's a whole very, very, you know, you know, ridiculously gendered uh, uh, discourse about, you know, about kind of valor and militancy and so on. You find this even, I mean, and that's a kind of also sort of orientalist trope. I mean, you find it in in Hegel writing about, you know, Hegel uses the concept of fanaticism quite specifically about about Islam, who, which he considers to be this uh, um, fanatical because it's a religion of the one. It has no, you know, it doesn't have the trinity, mediation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, but at the same time, he says, ah, well, because it is a religion, religion of the one, uh, it has, uh, it manifests itself in these forms of, um, of kind of valor and, and heroism and so on and so forth. Uh, and, which is also why Hegel thinks that there's a bizarre, and it's, a, and it's actually a kind of common way of, common parallel that people engage in, but there's a, for him a parallel between Mohammed and Robespierre. Um, and considering, you know, Hegel's rather peculiar, you know, like a kind of interestingly ambivalent views of the French Revolution, ultimately positive views of the French Revolution, we might argue, <coughs> it's an interesting analogy for him, for him to use. Can I take one to carry on from that? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I suppose about, about liberalism uh, is that, in a sense, it's not it's not only a thing of the, the anti, I mean, the sort of uh, the anti fanatical liberal liberal who's fanatical, I mean, anti fanatical. Mm. <coughs> one of the things about liberalism also is, is its belief in you know strong, you know strong extra governmental institutions or strong institutions, mm. um, kind of civil society arguments. Yeah, so yeah, which have you know, institutions like you know, universities or judiciary mm. or you know which which uh, are fundamentally liberal in a vague sense mm. uh, institutions which organise the structure of states which create a sort of civil society, mm -hmm. which which in a, in a way um, it doesn't circumvent the big fanatical being liberal. Mm -hmm. Sort of paradox, but it does give a different sort of arm mm. to it. I suppose one of the things about fanatics is they, they very rarely have institutions. Mm. Well, it's a sort of yeah. It's a kind of I mean that's that the the, the Hegel line fits well because in a sense it's an argument about about mediation and immediacy. Mm. You know one you know and that that's certainly for 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 uh, in Hegel's understanding of, of fanaticism both revolutionary and uh, theological. Uh, the idea of an absence of institutions is absolutely, and indeed, an absence of the articulations and mediations mm -hmm. of civil society, is absolutely crucial. And this is why it's it's quite interesting. So, unlike a lot of, um, un unlike a lot of the uh, sort of disparaging uh, kind of or or orientalist critiques of, of of Islam, actually, interesting, Hegel doesn't think that the the problem, so to speak. Um, with Islam vis-a-vis -vis Christianity is that Islam is a kind of particularist religion. Far from it. For him, it's excessively universal. So because, because it's purely universal, because it's purely based on a principle and on a pure monotheism, for him, it lacks this kind of mediatory argument. And he says, well, Robespierre uh, uh, and, and, and the revolution's relationship to equality bears the same relation. It's a kind of immediate equality rather than mediated one. So that's definitely, I think, uh, an aspect of um, of liberals, I would say more. Actually, I mean, I think one of the things that is uh, one of the intriguing strands that I actually only came to quite late in in reading about this, and therefore didn't include it very much in the book, is the way uh, that um, early thinking about the nature of uh, capitalism and, and markets by the you know in the Scottish Enlightenment by the like of Smith and so on was actually peculiarly based on the notion, which you know one might argue might have been proven to be rather historically correct, but we could argue about this, uh, that somehow uh, market society had this uh, pacifying, you know, as uh, the, the institutions, even the vaguely anarchic institutions, mm -hmm. 
of market society rather than necessarily institutions per se, have this kind of um, uh, pacifying role. There's a very interesting uh, book uh, by Hirschman, The Passions and the Interests, which is about, you know, thinking about, I, I think, I forget the subtitle, but, you know, sort of like defenses of capitalism before capitalism existed, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, the, where there was a, 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 it's a kind of discourse about, yeah, about commercial passions versus political passions. And I think that, that for me is a very interesting way of looking, at least at a certain aspect, perhaps a more political economic aspect of liberalism, uh, which didn't just argue on the basis of, um, you know, economic rationality, mm -hmm. uh, but also in terms of this, you know, in its own way quite utopian notion that uh, uh, market intercourse and interaction would serve to, would, would either channel, you know, human, extreme human passions or or, or not. And, and actually in, in Smith's Wealth of Nations, he, he also recognizes that in deeply uh, unequal uh, societies and recognizing the way that these might be generated by market relationships, that forms of extreme conviction, or indeed he uses the term fanaticism, are perfectly rational uh, on the side of those who are, who are losing out, so to speak. Because since they can't act through the market, the only way they can act is a unified political form, and that generally works easier if one has a sort of absolute political principle. I'm sorry, so, I'm taking advantage. More questions, please. Okay, I was wondering about the extent to which this argument is basically about materialism and idealism. Mm -hmm. and it sounds to me like what you're saying, one of saying that to analyse fanaticism in terms of its proposition of content, its beliefs, whatever, it's a categorical mistake. What we should be paying attention to is social conditions, social relations, and is that, is that kind of fair? Uh, that's partly fair. I mean, there's part. I mean, it's partly my own sort of, you know, uh, ideological disposition shining through. Uh, but, but at, at the same time, and that's what you know. That's why I think even if you look, like, you know, even if you look at um, the the tradition, or well, not the tradition because it's not really tradition, but you know, the, the set of responses to um, religion, say, amongst Marxists over you know, nineteenth and twentieth century. It's, it's interesting that you get this constant back and forth between that moment of, of uh, certainly in, in Marx's case, the critique of critique of religion is an argument saying that, um, that precisely to struggle against religion qua religion rather than as the, uh, as the form taken, uh, the ideological form taken in certain you know, particular types of societies would be mistaken. Yeah. Um, so on on the one hand, I'm, you know, on the one hand, I'm I'm partly sympathetic to that, though. Depends how one 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 makes that argument, because of course the sociological, you know, sociological reductionism about forms of uh, extreme political conviction famously uh, doesn't work. I mean, uh, it's not a Marxist argument per se, but you know, the arguments, for instance, that uh, you know the poorest are more prone. Uh, because of their absence of, of ways of reacting, you know, of fighting a particular system to, uh, you know, become religious extremists or whatever you want to call it, it's just not, you know, it's kind of not as such not true, at least. Uh, so the question then would be, well, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of social uh, uh, explanation would be would be worthwhile? Now, there's some social, you know, for instance, uh, there's some I think quite very persuasive 
social and material explanations that I talk about in the book in anthropology about the emergence of millenarianism. Uh, so, for instance, mil you know, millenarian or apocalyptic uh, movements are very often uh, crisis movements, and they're very often movements that arise in moments of radical, um, you know, the radical kind of encounter of, um, well, in, in the cases of, of sort of Melanesian cargo cults of, of uh, societies with, you know, kind of radical immediate encounter with capitalism in its most, uh, you know, kind of extreme uh, uh, and, and unbridled form. So in that case, you have something that is, in a way, a social uh, explanation, because it explains it through social interactions. Um, it gives a rationality to the phenomenon. So for instance, um, you know, there's an interesting argument. Peter Worsley in the, in the Trumpet Shall Sound makes the argument that there's a, you know, of course it was rational for people, for, for people in Melanesia to think that, you know, that uh, uh, the, the white man had, uh, you know, had infinite access to infinite goods because, of course, there was no, you know, the, inv you know, the invading forces had no form of production available. So they had, you know, just, so th there's those, those kinds of social explanations I can kind of understand. The social explanations of political conviction, I think, are much uh, trickier. Uh, and possibly even trickier than kind of psychological ones. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm having a bit of difficulty with what you're saying about people, or rather what you're not saying about people. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not saying so many things about people. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but I mean, this you've spoken tonight about militant subjectivity, um, but I'm not clear what you're saying about objectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, Hegel has an awful lot to say about objectivity. Um, in terms of spirit, mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of uh, the, and in terms of um, truth, lying not primarily in language and conversations, but lying primarily in things and relations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that has certain consequences for the way we should be trying to approach um, these problems. I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but. For some reason, you don't want to seem to want you don't seem to want to access Hegel's spirit uh, in, in order to uh, you know in order to uh, in order to help us with these problems. You seem to want to uh, stay in uh, a comfortable sphere of, of uh, Marxist materialism. Mm. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what accessing Hegel's spirit as such would do to the. The argument, which I'm sure is that it, it, it would be a long uh, answer and a long um, and a long discussion. I mean, I, I so I mean, I mean, in in one way, I think you know, if you're if um, you know something like objective spirit, something like the 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 objectivity of uh, um, the social objectivity of, of, of certain uh, ideal or ideational forms is certainly present in Marx's account of the functioning of abstraction. Indeed, what Marx says about the stake and capital bears a huge uh, um, uh, sort of debt uh, to Hegel. So, in that regard, um, you know, in that regard, I don't think I'd be hostile um, to accessing that spirit. But I just wouldn't know. I mean, at, at present, I just wouldn't know how to go about it. But you know, my question is about your definition of politics. Mm -hmm. During the two late conferences on the idea of communism, yeah. um, there was already opposition between 
Negri and Michael Hart on one side, mm -hmm. and Badiou and Rancière on the other side in the way to sing politics. Uh -huh. Negri and Michael Hart emphasis, still emphasis on the necessity to rely on political economy, where Hart Badiou emphasis more on the aspect of will or conviction or fidelity. Mm -hmm. You think between these two positions, can you explain your definition of politics? Oh, <laughs> I get the easy questions at the end. Spirit, politics. Um, well, um, I, as, as I, I suppose as I was answering to Robert before, I think there's there's uh, that moment of of will or principle or conviction is certainly um, is certainly necessary for anything that I would recognize as, as politics and I and I think that um, intel intellectually speaking the emphasis of people like Badiou and Rancière on the principled or to use their terminology axiomatic character of uh, of equality for instance which you know in, in a sense fulfills what other you know what certain 19th century thinkers would have certainly viewed as fanatical is uh, significant uh, is significant because um, you know because it allows one to uh, uh, to conceive how um, you know even in situations of relative social stasis or weakness, one could still maintain uh, a kind of uh, emancipatory uh, political project. And in one way, the things that Rancière and Badiou say map map onto very well onto certain uh, movements. So you know, I would argue there's a way in which if you take something like the abolitionist movement in the 19th century, it's a very Powerful form of axiomatic politics, and, and in fact, uh, uh, it, it's a very, you know, it's a very compelling one. Um, at, at the same time, I think, you know, I think I do fall in, in between because I think removing that dimension of the the way in which politics might, you know, relates to to tendencies that are already at work in society, to groups that already have it, you know, I don't think, and I think this is the, for me, in one way, the the problem of. Uh, fanaticism or specifically the problems of the politics of conviction is the sort of idealist notion that you can have a politics without interest or that you can have a politics without without that sort of uh, you know uh, lived and collective dimension of, of of interest and I think there's a sort of there's a danger to an excessively you know of course in certain cases that's true I mean the, the, the abolitionists had no you know certainly the ones who weren't uh, either freed slaves or slaves themselves there's no immediate you know it's a could argue why they engaged in it and where they came from and so on, but it wasn't any straightforward way in which a sort of social interest was at stake. Uh, but I, but I think, um, I think for for politics, I really do want to consider themselves transformative or emancipatory or what have you. Um, entirely removing the dimension of of, uh, of political economy or of, of, of social basis seems seems uh, you know un unfeasible. It seems that then all you have, all you have, is a sort of constant restatement of principle, uh, and therefore an abandonment of anything that you could refer to as a kind of strategy, so to speak. But, and, and fanaticism is generally a kind of non-strategic thought in many ways. It's yes, I, I would like maybe some clarification of you on um, defining the domain of this so-called fanaticism. I suppose fanaticism is a one radical area, say whatever it is, versus, I suppose, rationalism or analysis.
esteem, some militance, and uh, kind of conviction fundamentalists, and so are these groups or whatever, are they actually defining the fanaticism, or they somewhere in between this fanaticism? Or, or particularly interesting for me actually is the gray area between fanatics and those who actually consider analytical argument. And perhaps you could give some one or two examples. Mm -hmm. And where are these people? Mm -hmm. People or movements and so on, so so that my domain or your domain is sort of calibrated yeah. for us. Um, yeah. The because the book is a I mean, on one level, I think fanaticism is a terrible term to use. So that's, you know, on one level, I don't think it's particularly helpful. So, I mean, so, so the, the idea that one would come up, and, and, and you know, I've seen both books and, and articles from very different disciplines that have this approach, you know, more or less, you know, create an ideal type of a fanatic and then, you know, sort of comparatively or analytically find out who is and who isn't and so on. So that's part of the reason why I wanted to look at the way the term and various similar terms were used you know, because I think you can draw a thread. It's slightly discontinuous, but there is a thread. Um, now, in terms of, uh, so on one level, I don't, I, th I think there's certain traits or features of what people have been or groups have been accused of being fanatics for, in, in very rare cases, treated themselves as being very rare. Um, I think you can find some traits like conviction and abstraction and so on. Now, in terms of, of, of fanaticism and rationalism, I think that is a problem that, at least historically speaking, is very, becomes very significant uh, in the wake of the, the French Revolution, becomes very significant, for instance, and, and I suppose in one of the most uh, important and influential books about the whole problematic of fanaticism understood as a politics of abstraction and conviction in Edmund Burke's uh, treatment uh, of the French Revolution and the reflections on the revolution in France. Because it is there that Burke explicitly defends against the uh, inordinate use of reason, in of abstract reason in politics, uh, that he defends um, Conservative, broadly, well, inaugurally conservative principles like um, prejudice, uh, custom, all of these forms of uh, of uh, lived uh, tradition and experience that would somehow palliate, would somehow would, would somehow um, uh, deal with the you know finitude and uh, um, fallibility of human beings in a way that that uh, principled rational politics. Um, and that you know, so then you, what you get in the conservative uh, tradition of which you know Burke is, is you know possibly the most interest you know the most fascinating uh, and important figure is a sort of rational because argued and so on argument for uh, a dose of irrationality around questions of tradition and prejudice and so on in in and, and it's that moment that I think is really interesting because. For instance, in these kind of arguments about new atheism and so on, it's taken for granted uh, that uh, uh, that the defense of reason has always uh, been, you know, on the side of, 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 of tolerance, and that, that the rational and the reasonable, let's say, are are, are coincide. Whilst the, the whilst Burke's argument is that to be reasonable means to limit your, you know, means to limit the projection of rationality onto onto social life. The full projection of rationality in social life leads to things which, you know, of course, for for Burke are utterly horrifying. For instance, 
the purely geometrical decision on the size of provinces and, and arrondissements in France. You know, so these are kind of obsession with arithmetic. Uh, people who get arithmetic geometry, you know, the, the imposition of abstraction on the complexities and, and ambiguities of daily life. That would be a fanatical rationalism, in fact, more or less, is for, for Bertrand. More questions? Speaking as a fanatic, <laughs> um, who I became one uh, as a teenager during the Vietnam War, uh, where one of our favorite sayings was, scratch a liberal and you'll find a fascist. Uh, and, uh, the, the, the great figure of liberalism at that time, before Nixon, was Lyndon Johnson, who was a great New Deal liberal, whose favorite phrase was, come let us reason together. Uh, we refer to it as reasonable. Um, and it seems to me, I mean, this is, I'm going to draw a picture here that's overbroad and so misses a lot of nuance, but that, that when you think about fa um, fanaticism, that you, you have to talk about it in terms of democracy with a capital D. And then you have to talk about democracy with a capital D in terms of imperialism. And that liberalism is a kind of a, a reasonableness for us that rests on the back of them. So that you have, to put it in modern day, although you, uh, you know my examples were from when I was a kid, but you have Obama who is one of the most reasonable people on the planet as far as I can see in a way. He makes incredibly reasonable speeches and, and some commentators swooned at some of his speeches. And yet he's drone bombing uh, the borders of Afghanistan. You know, he's sending Star Wars machines in to, to kill whoever has to be killed, and it's unfortunate a lot of us people get killed, but the U.S. has certain permanent interests in that area of the world. Um, so, now this liberalism and this reasonableness for us versus them provokes a reaction, and that reaction takes various forms, and in general, those forms are characterized as fanatical. And I would argue that broadly they fall into two different areas. One is my type of fanaticism, which I think is good. <laughs> and the other is their type of fanaticism, which I think is bad. And, and, and the my and their that I'm talking about here is uh, religious fundamentalism, not just religious fundamentalism, but various forms of social reaction. So in the United States, to, to not be chauvinistic about it and just point at you know, the Islamic uh, fundamentalism. In the United States, you have the teabaggers who are kind of reacting against oppression and the growing divide between the rich and the poor and doing it in a, in a way that's regressive and reactionary and is based on not understanding exactly how things work, which are the, I'll be just one last, which is why I think your point about that you can't divorce this from an understanding of the economy is a very important point, that you can't just be indignant about principle. But so I'd just like to say that I think that fanaticism and liberalism are kind of two sides of the same thing, and that if you attack one without attacking the other, that you strengthen them both. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I suppose it'd be, I mean, it'd be an interesting discussion to think about the, uh, I mean, again, as I said, liberalism is a very protein term, but certainly, you know, actually existing <laughs> liberalism. Uh, to use what people used to use for socialism, it has many of the many of the features I obviously brought up. I think there's a, there's a nice there's an interesting argument in a in a book which I, actually I, I used rather a bit in my own and which is now being.
being translated into English by the uh, Italian historian of ideas, Domenico Rosuldo, wrote this book called uh, Liberalism, a Counter-History. Uh, and actually, he deals a lot with the, 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 the uses within liberalism of these kind of Burkean arguments um, against fanaticism and radicalism and so on. And his argument is, you know, historically it's pretty complex, but its main uh, plank is fairly easy to get, which is to say that in its, um, in its uh, development, uh, liberalism always created uh, a kind of sacred space, which is to say that a domain within which uh, those uh, liberal principles held, you know, so to go back to your drone uh, argument, Though I hear there's also, uh, there will be drones, oh, there are drones flying over London at the present, uh, uh, possibly not with the same uh, armaments. Uh, but um, that, you know, the argument that there is a kind of sacred space where, um, where liberalism holds or, or doesn't. And so in the history of uh, certainly um, 18th uh, and 19th century liberalism, there were two, uh, um, two ways of defining the sacred, that sort of sacred space. Uh, one was uh, along the lines of you know, colonialism or, or, or imperialism, which is to say that you know, there were groups or races, etc., who, though they may one day be brought into the space where liberal principles hold, either were not, not yet ready for them or never ready for them, and, and so on and so forth. And the other one was, uh, which is very uh, easy to see in terms of, of suffrage and so on, was a class uh, uh, distinction, so that you know, liberalism was something that you know, was... was was there for, um, and, and actually, uh, he shows quite nicely that very often liberal, in the, before it became sort of codified into the political philosophy as X, Y, and Z, uh, was just simply describing certain groups, like the liberal classes being, you know, not, you know, not, uh, uh, not as a doctrine, but as a description. So I, I, I think in, in that sense, um, in that sense, I do think that forms of, so to speak, actually existing liberalism continue to draw those, um, those boundaries, and those boundaries have very explicit you know, military and geopolitical uh, reasons and, and, uh, and effects. Um, now, I think the question as to the, uh, I think there, 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 there's something, it would be too easy perhaps though to then uh, simply define um, forms of, let's say, fanatical, good or bad, resistance as simply an effect of that. Because I think one of the in interesting issues is that there are, you know, there are relatively autonomous histories of, you know, movements, religious or political or otherwise. So, you know, so for instance, it becomes very difficult to understand the emergence of forms of uh, religiously, uh, uh, you know, defined, uh, uh, you know, political anti-imperialism, so to speak, um, without understanding the failure or collapse of, you know, secular or atheist versions thereof in, in an earlier period. And so, so I think then one, you know, one needs to then study, you know, look at, at, at you know, I, I think it would, it would be giving too much credit, in a sense, to, to, to Im imperial or neo-colonial policies to think that they simply generate forms of uh, kind of inquiry resistance because I think those, you know, those forms of resistance themselves ha are, you know, have their own kind of internal history. So, yeah. Well, to avoid any yeah. actual res actual inquiry yeah. resistance, yeah. it's eight o'clock, so we're going to uh, yeah. finish. I'd like to thank uh, the Forum for European Philosophy, Juliana and Simon, for hosting the NSE hosting event.
I think I'm glad to have uh, talking at the stage to me. Thank you all.